all of a sudden she passed out. Mm. Lisa and I looked at each other and, you know, she died right there in our living room. Friends, I have a rich treasure to share with you today. Uh, This is Morgan Snyder, and welcome to another edition of the Become Good Soil podcast. This is a conversation, a sacred conversation that I had the privilege of sharing with Brad Beck. Uh, Brad is a great and good man. He's been a mentor to me, Um, married, three children, and all over the world, just chasing after God and responding to the wild call. He was in YWAM for his very first year of marriage in Kona, Hawaii with Lisa. And then they're off to the Philippines and medical school. And then he got the privilege of serving on the medical team at NASA at the height of the space program. And off from there, Texas, Colorado, eventually he, like me, landed here at Ransom Heart, serves as part of our executive team. And I had the privilege to ask him to rewind the clock and to lean into yesterday's decade with today's wisdom. And so without more, I want to dive in with Brad and invite you into a sacred conversation. So went away to college, uh, raised in a Catholic family, became a Christian at Purdue, Navigators, and came into my room and kind of set my life in a completely different direction. I was a, what I call ethnic Catholic, but knew kind of spirituality was important, but didn't know how to live that out mm-hmm. in that particular faith. And so became a Christian, dedicated my life to God at that point, and my chosen profession was medicine. I was in pre-med at Purdue and just really felt like I was to continue doing that, like God was continuing to bless that. And as I went through, got into medical school at Kentucky and continued on, went through training in my 20s and residency training back in Cincinnati and got somewhat more involved with the church, uh, this time uh, Presbyterian Church that I was going to at the time and really kind of felt even when I was in medicine, kind of felt the call on my life to some kind of ministry Mm -hmm. at that point. Got fairly involved with the church, but also was a resident and working 80 hours a week and everything else. So I didn't get married till I was 30, Mm -hmm. and Lisa was 26. And so we were older, especially back then. Mm -hmm. You know, it it was uh, pretty rare to get married that late back in the 80s and and so we got married and kind of right away felt that God was calling us to some ministry opportunities. We ended up going to Youth with the Mission for a year. After on our first anniversary, we were we were in Hawaii at the School of Missions there. We were with YWAM for a whole year. That was one of the certainly more formative things for our marriage, but also a formative thing for me. They had a phrase 
there that was called being spoiled for the supernatural. Mm -hmm. Once you had the opportunity to see God work through people or through lives or through schools or through different ministries, you got spoiled for it. You wanted to get back to it. I mean, Lisa had already been through that as a single. Now we were experiencing that together as a couple. So that kind of sealed our fate in some respects. Felt even at that point, even when I left to go into more residency training, I felt like I was going to end up somehow back in ministry-ish. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be part-time, might be full-time. Or but ministry that, as a physician? I wasn't sure. We actually, interestingly enough, when we were sent out on a missions trip, Lisa and I ended up being leaders mm-hmm. of a group of like eight college-aged kids. And so we were on a drama team, but it was at a medical base. So I helped with the medical things, but we also did the singing, dancing, and skits oh and all goodness. the other things that Back. that everything else happens in, in on the drama team. And the drama team, they were fun. They were yes. creative. They're in their 20s, some of them in their late teens, and, and you're out there on these goofy islands in the middle of the Philippines, no electricity, no running water, and you're out there preaching the gospel and you're doing skits that you hope they understand. Oh, my goodness, (laughs) And just all the crazy things that go along with uh, being on the mission field, especially with youth with a mission, so— But, you know, it sets something within us and within me in particular. Learn how to walk with God, you know, believed in conversational intimacy with God from back then. So, believed he answered prayer in a personal way and have a conversation with him. And so, that was a formative thing, certainly in our marriage. Mm -hmm. We also lived in community. I mean, we were with—it was a discipleship training school with— I think there were like 25 girls and 15 guys Mm -hmm. and like three married couples. They were all living in this huge house and kind of living together and sharing life. And we just kind of learned some real basic lessons early in our marriage that God comes through. Mm -hmm. You know, you can trust them. You can talk with them. His promises are true. And several things that really kind of helped us as we kind of set up our 30s Mm -hmm. when we got to that point in our marriage. So during that time, Brad, you're a young man, newly married, you know, pushing to get through residency. What would you say about the categories of identity and validation insofar as when you look back with today's wisdom on those years of being a younger man, how would you assess what you were doing with your questions of who you are as a man, and if you have what it takes. Yeah, I don't think I had formulated the questions very much. Mm -hmm. I don't think I had a huge desire to kind of figure out what my place was in the story at that point. Now, didn't have, you know, kind of a spiritual situation or upbringing to get me there. But in my 20s, I was living with a Presbyterian pastor and his family, and wonderful man, very Christ-centered, and living with him 
and feeling his validation mm-hmm. and his wife's validation as, you know, as far as like, you know, mothering and fathering, they really kind of became my more real mother and father than my biological mm-hmm. mother and father. So kind of spiritual parents in a yeah, way. Yeah, they really were. And, you know, just really unbelievable, totally authentic, spirit-filled Christian men and women, and I'm living with them. You know, I was just like, you know, the verse in Psalms where the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I mean, that was just true in my life. I was so fortunate to live with this family that was kind of living and breathing the gospel Mm -hmm. into my life and seeing how they worked it out with their kids. They had five kids and a huge disparity of ages, you know, like almost spanning two decades. And so I got kind of like inserted into this story that had been going on before Mm. me. And I just got to be a part of it. Wow. Didn't deserve it by Mm -hmm. any stretch of the imagination. I sure hadn't done anything in my life to think, wow, you know, you won this prize. Yes. You go live with this incredible Christian family. But it happened upon me. And I soaked it up yes. for all it was worth. Yes. I mean, you know, it was hard not to soak up because yes. you're living with them. Right. You know, even though I was in residency training and gone, you know, kind of a huge percentage of the time, they still were kind of, you know, the place I went home to sleep and everything else. Yes. So anyway. So Brad, in that, when you think of your career then, you start medical school, you're in residency, pursuing a a career as a doctor, and then you have this passion and this interest in missions, and it's not necessarily just medical missions. And from there, you know, your career has taken some really interesting directions, and it's traveled some really interesting milestones, but I definitely wouldn't describe it as linear from a human external standpoint. Right. Give us some milestones externally so we can say, where did you go professionally? And then I want to go below the surface to say, what was it that God was up to in you as a younger man to cultivate who you are today and what it is that you bring. Okay. So I was practicing emergency medicine, had done that for about five years. It was great when I was single, felt like God was calling me into something else. So Lisa and I got married when I was 30, she was 26, and then practiced emergency medicine for another year and then went into YWAM for a year, and then came back, and I was accepted into this program called Aerospace Medicine. It's at Wright State University, and I had actually kind of stumbled upon it through meeting a guy who was in the program when I was working in the emergency room, another doctor. And so really felt like when I was with YWAM for a year, I applied to the Aerospace Medicine program. And These people basically trained people and they sent them off to NASA down in Houston or at Kennedy Space Center in Florida. So, I mean, Lisa and I prayed and applied to the program and I was accepted. So when we left YWAM, we came back and we did aerospace medicine Mm -hmm. training in, in Dayton and trying to get pregnant and, you know, going through, it wasn't a terribly rigorous program like a surgery residency Mm -hmm. that I was in. And so, you know, went through that. That was a phase of training. And then I was accepted to go and start working down in Houston. 
And by that time, Lisa was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And that pregnancy was Brianne. And when we moved to Houston in 1989, I was working at Johnson Space Center. And so Lisa's pregnant. I'm down there. And I kind of fell into, you know, what looks like from the outside my dream job. I'm at the space program. I'm in, in my early 30s. I was hired like three months after I was down there. And that was a process that could take a year or two Mm -hmm. for other people. But I just came down at the right time Mm -hmm. and just had the right credentials and the right people and everything sort of fell in to what was going on. I mean, to just be able to work there and enjoy like the fun that the space program was. Mm -hmm. I was kind of a space nut when I was a kid. and Followed, you know, missions from, I remember Mercury missions, Gemini missions, the Apollo missions, and the flights of the space shuttle. Now, here I am, uh, Lisa and I are down in Houston, and I'm actually working at this place I had kind of dreamed of for this huge period of time. And it was really a, a gift in many senses that I got to do something I just so much loved and I was pretty good at mm-hmm. um, because it wasn't just like a clinical thing. It was also organizational. It was project work. It was teaching and training and working with astronauts, working with flight crews, working with various engineers at the space program as a physician within a highly technical field. Mm-hmm. And so that was my kind of my mid-30s, you know, at least professionally, was working for the space program. Brad, when you were in the space program, tell us a story of a situation where you found yourself going, this makes me come alive. This is awesome. I'm here. I need to pinch myself. I can't believe it's happening where it felt like you were you. Because we were flight surgeons and we were assigned to crews, we were then called crew surgeons. So we were assigned to a particular crew for a particular flight. So I got trained to be in the backseat of a T-38. It's a tandem. It's a front-back hypersonic jet. So training aircraft. And so the astronauts flew them. They were kind of their um, sports car, okay. so to speak. okay. But they would fly him down for launches. And so I went down uh, with the crew, and we were in four T-38s, and I'm in the backseat of one. And we're flying above the clouds like a full moon night. And the guy is teaching me how to fly in formation. Mm. So he's letting me fly the airplane. And so I'm flying closer and closer and closer to a formation of T-38s, which was the rest of the crew. Mm. So I knew all these guys, you know, flying this jet on an unbelievable night, you know, like over the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. And I just remember just the whole thing. You know, mm. I can remember the whole flight, what we were doing, and how he's trying to teach me how to fly this plane. Plus, it was just like beautiful. Mm with the moon and with the clouds below you and with the dark night above, you can see stars. Mm. It was just kind of otherworldly. I know it was 
real common experience for them, but it was real uncommon mm. experience for wow. me. And I had a bunch of experiences like that. Being able to fly, being able to work in the space program, help people with their medical issues, and work with a bunch of engineers mm-hmm. and a, a bunch of other scientific people to kind of be the liaison with crews and with kind of life sciences for the astronauts and for the crews. Yes. So I got to fly in the KC-135, which was that vomit comet, and we did medical experiments in the back and went to a bunch of launches, a bunch of landings, and just had a kind of a whole host of experiences in a professional way, it was real similar to what I experienced in a spiritual way mm-hmm. when I was living with the pastor yes. and his family. Yes. So, yeah, I just felt like totally lucky yep. and fortunate and blessed to be there and get to do yes. stuff like that. And so, Brad, when you think back on that decade of your 30s where you're just really launching, uh, no pun intended, your career and um, married— you have one daughter and two on the way in that decade there. Yeah. Are there any regrets as far as the level of the masculine journey? I mean, it sounds like obviously there's favor on your life and God put you with some remarkable people. But when you look back, if you think, man, if I could take today's wisdom and be a younger man in my story, this is what I would have loved to have changed. Um, there are things I picked up throughout that decade that I wish I would have learned earlier. Most of it centers around Maddie being born. Mm -hmm. And after Brianne, about a year and a half later, Maddie comes and... Be great to hear that story if you're up for it. Oh, yeah. So Maddie's born... Kind of typical pregnancy, it's pretty close, is 18 months away from Brianne, and we weren't planning it, and it was hard to get pregnant the first time, and then the second time was like, you know, like accidental. Mm. And so Maddie comes along and is born on January 2nd, and like right away, there were things that were wrong. She had to go into an ICU, then a step-down unit, and she was having trouble breathing, and had a kind of... a bunch of kind of what looked like minor physical abnormalities. Mm -hmm. And they did some genetic studies right before she was discharged. So it was a tough time because, you know, having a baby in the ICU or having a baby in the neonatal ICU or having her in what they called step-down, really, you know, a lot of unknowns, what's going on, why isn't she eating well and, and everything else? And so she had genetic studies done. And then we didn't have the results. And we're taking her home from the hospital. And I got a call from one of the genetics doctors and said, oh, man, you know, there's something we need to talk about. And I go, okay. I wanted a headline anyway. And she said that there was pieces of a chromosome missing. And that probably explains some of the stuff that was going on. So picked her up, took her home. We had to do like two feedings with her. She wouldn't eat well. I don't know if it was a coordination thing or she had like a 
cleft in her soft palate in the back of her throat. So we were kind of thrown into this kind of medical life, Mm -hmm. you know, centered around her. Bram was, you know, super healthy and seemed normal in all respects. And so we're kind of thrown into this issue with Maddie. And as we found out a few weeks later, she has a deletion in the middle of a second chromosome. And so you said, what does that mean? You know, what's it called? And they go, well, it's so rare. It's not going to be called anything. We've never really even seen it before. And we're at, you know, it was at the time, Baylor Genetics in Houston. And it's supposed to be, you know, premier. Mm -hmm. You know, they're mapping the human genome. Mm -hmm. And we're talking to these doctors with, you know, numerous PhDs behind their names. So we're asking them questions and they don't know the answers, you know, because they don't know what that piece of the chromosome does. And so they started asking us questions. Well, what is she doing? What isn't she doing? And so we were kind of launched into this thing where the most they could tell us is that she would probably have moderate handicaps and moderate delays Mm -hmm. just from surmising how much genetic yes. material right. she was missing. Wild they ass were, guess. Yeah, exactly. It was a wag. Mm-hmm. So we took her home, you know, and tried to raise her, and everything was question marks. You know, the, will she gain weight? Will she do this? Will she do that? And we would go back to Baylor, and, you know, we would ask them questions that they didn't know the answer to, But, you know, then they would ask us like 50 questions. And she had some structural things. She had to get the soft palate cleft fixed, needed tubes in her ears, and she had a hernia in her her diaphragm, and that required some fairly major surgery over the next couple of years. But we're kind of launched into this kind of special needs situation, Mm -hmm. you know, that we weren't really prepared for. There weren't answers. Mm -hmm. You know, there was just a huge batch of questions that were coming into our life. So for Lisa and I, we were kind of hunkering into a survival mode. We had some good friends. We had a good church. We had good fellowship. And one of the things that that period of time did is it showed us not to put up with BS. Mm -hmm. You know, that if people could come alongside us and not give us platitudes, Mm -hmm. but just be willing to walk alongside of us. Those people were gold and platinum. Mm. And the rest of the people who were either felt uncomfortable or didn't know how to offer or weren't willing to walk alongside us, they just got pushed off Mm -hmm. to the side. So it really kind of became this, you know, journey of emotional and spiritual kind of hand-to-mouth. It was mm-hmm. like our horizon got shortened. Yes. It was like, can we survive that day? Mm-hmm. You know, with the challenges she provided and the questions that were raised. And then I just remember, you know, could we survive that hour? I mean, hundreds of times I prayed for for grace, not for the day, but for the next hour. Could I get through the next hour? And so, and when you pray that way and you keep seeing God's hand in providing what you need right then Mm -hmm. with friends and with a good church, 
we were set on a really different trajectory as far as our family goes. Mm. I was probably set on a different trajectory too, just professionally. What do you mean? Well, sometimes I wonder if we had had like three normal kids, Mm -hmm. would I have stayed at NASA longer? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, like the shuttle program, the launches and landings are determined by somebody else Mm -hmm. in some office, like way far away. And when there's delays, they don't care it's your daughter's birthday when the next launch date is. They just want you to be there, you know, at that particular time. In the space program, I don't remember anybody like bringing up any personal issue. It was a sign of weakness to bring up a personal, certainly a spiritual issue at the space program. You just sucked it up and did what was necessary to get the crew ready for the next launch. So, you know, to kind of have like a bigger reality forced upon me yes, at home with my own daughter, then the lure of the space program, you know, the shine on the space program tarnished quite a bit. Yes, yes. Although it was still fun and I was getting to fly jets and not as much as before, it was like a huge like shift in my thinking, yeah. you know, like, whoa, you know, this is this is really important. It's really important to Lisa. It's yes. really important for a marriage, really important to my kids. Mm. But it sounds like you really did walk with God in making a shift from the space program was big. It was a really big story. But yeah. Maddie was a very strong invitation into a much bigger story that put your vocation in perspective. It doesn't sound like it diminished your joy and your interest and your passion, but it sounded like it really redirected your energy and your motivation to a larger story. Oh, yeah. Very much so. And of course, I mean, I I didn't have vocabulary for that back then. You know, John and Brent hadn't written Sacred Romance. You know, I was just sort of fumbling along on my own. So this is this is late 80s, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. early 90s. So, I mean, it was a long time ago. So, where did that story go, Brad? From Maddie, obviously, she's growing up, and you're seeing more realities right. of what it means to be missing a piece of your second chromosome. Yeah. You know, it was very sobering. You know, Brianne's kind of, you know, going through her milestones mm-hmm. and growing, you know, and whatever percentile. And Maddie's like... She like falls off the chart at mm. six months and you kind of find out more reality as you walk, which happens with quite a lot of things in life. So, you know, we're kind of bouncing along and Lisa gets this idea of having another kid. And I was like, well, I dug my heels mm-hmm. pretty firmly in the ground and thought we're not doing real good with number two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What in the world are we thinking about number three? But thank God. Thank God. Mm. She knew something I didn't know. Yes. And, you know, we got pregnant again, and Chris comes along. So now Maddie's bookended and still in the space program of work for NASA, working a pretty kooky schedule. Although I had pretty much backed up from, you know, like volunteering for every Mm -hmm. possible thing I could possibly do. He had three kids at home and a special need kid in the middle. And holy smokes, I just knew I was needed at home. So Chris was born 
in 93. We're going along and I feel kind of a tug away to go do something else. The boss I had at NASA had left to become corporate medical director at, at a big airline company. And he had said, you know, to most of us, that if you ever want a job there, you know, I can get you in. And felt like it was time, mm-hmm. you know. And so left NASA, ended up following him to this airline. We lived in Dallas. I worked in Dallas. And then he made another job change and asked me to go with him. Ended up at a University of Texas in Galveston at the medical school there and just got incredible promotion. My skills weren't in medicine necessarily. My skills were kind of in the organizational aspect Mm -hmm. and project management and Mm -hmm. administrative things. And he saw that and he kind of shepherded me into going into academics down at the university And so I kind of followed him back to Galveston and we moved back to Houston. And so, you know, kind of dragging the kids and Lisa around, you know, at least it was inside the state. But we kind of got dragged back and forth Mm -hmm. a a few times and ended up living in Houston. And so Manny had quite a few, like, medical things happen in the first couple of years. And then you know, to kind of give you some idea, she was really small. She weighed like about 25 pounds and wore diapers and she was aware and she could actually walk and, you know, but she was clumsy and she fell a lot and she was actually somewhat engaging. She liked to be held. She liked to be picked up. She watched Barney, of all things, on TV and she loved Teletubbies for some reason. And so, we were kind of in more of a cruise mode because her medical needs weren't like popping up mm-hmm. all the time. But the prediction of moderate delays yep. and, you know, you know, she probably had mental age of about two years old. And, and what actual age? From like five on. Okay. You know, she didn't speak. She would vocalize, but she didn't know words. She walked really late. She had these moderate delays, and as we kind of went on, you know, to age three or four, the changes were very slow Mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. You know, she didn't gain a whole lot of weight one year, gain a whole lot of height, or gain a whole lot of capabilities. It was like she had plateaued, but also we weren't on this, like, oh, she needs this surgery. Yes. You know, we were off that train. So So this is your new normal. Yeah. Do you, you have a life expectancy at this point? No, nothing. Mm. We stopped going to Baylor because they asked us more questions and they provided no answers. Yes. And I understand that they were trying to gather data up in case this ever happened again. So, I mean, she was like a one in 20 million. So, it was never going to be named. Yes. You know, because it was so rare that there wasn't going to be any more. Yes. Or if there were... If it was just a little bit bigger or in a slightly different place, it's almost always lethal mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. kids miscarry. So we're just kind of charting this territory that really, at least in medical terms, really wasn't helpful. Right. You know, they oh, you absolutely. Know. So we're just kind of chugging along through this period of life. And fortunately, we had some incredible friends that we still have. It helped us with this journey and 
helped us through this time, you know, to some days survive and other days live pretty well. Yes. I think the one thing that really happened, I told you about it, our horizon really shortened. Yes. And so, you know, we didn't kind of make big plans for anything because Maddie could always kind of change it. We did have some respite. You know, some of our parents helped us out. and We were able to get away some, and that was really, really helpful just to get away from the, kind of the constancy of needs that Maddie was. It was like, it was like having an 18-month-old yes, baby that always right. needed changing. And one of the milestones of having kids is like when they don't need diapers anymore, yes. you know, and you think, oh, you can stop buying them and yes. you can stop messing with that whole thing. There was really not a realistic hope that she would be able to, mm. you know, get out of diapers and mm. do a group home right. or whatever, right. you know, or drive a car. Right. You know, she was just like this little elvish kid right. that was somewhat difficult to understand and real difficult to kind of figure a future, yep. you know, for. So, Brad, when she came towards the end of her time on Earth, was it a surprise to you guys or was it something that you had been able to prepare for? It was a surprise. By that time, we had moved to Colorado Springs. I had started working for another ministry. So now I'm in my 40s and we moved here. Things were pretty good, but, you know, kind of reestablishing friends and church and everything else that you have to navigate and negotiate, especially with kind of a higher needs kid. You always end up with some churches won't take them. Some mm. churches don't know how to handle them. And, you know, some people look at you like, you know, you got six eyes and, mm. you know, your kid's not neat. You know, your kid's not understandable. Your kid's not predictable by any stretch of the imagination. So we're in a period of our life where we're finding the right people we want to walk with. And we found plenty, fortunately. And we found a great church. And so we got to November of 99 and Maddie kind of gone in for a routine checkup and the primary care doctor heard this heart murmur and he said, wow, didn't hear it before. It's kind of loud. And did you know that? And as a physician, I had kind of taken care of some of the Mm -hmm. simpler things with her, trying to keep her out of doctor's offices. Mm -hmm. And so I might listen to her heart and it's like, wow, I didn't hear that before. And it's pretty noticeable. So went to a pediatric cardiologist and we walked in and, you know, listened to our story and, you know, listens to her. And then we get like this echo there in the office. We've been there like a couple hours Mm -hmm. and I couldn't see the echo. And she was like really fighting this whole thing. She was 25 pounds, but she was pure muscle. Mm. I think she had like 5% body fat. Mm. So holding her on a table was kind of like a two-person job, believe it or not. So we're holding her down, and the echo is going on behind me, and I see the tech look up, and so we go back into his office for like an immediate follow-up. And I'm like, you know, whoa, you know, and, you know, Maddie's hungry, and she's pitching a fit, and... um so we're just dealing with that. And he comes back in. He says, this is going to be hard, but I think she has primary pulmonary hypertension. And the murmur you're hearing is tricuspid insufficiency. And 
if this is what it is, it's progressive, it's fatal, there's no treatments for it. I mean, she seemed indestructible to yes, us. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> and so and when you're living hour by hour in that you have this odd sense of a new normal for someone to define fatal and progression, it just Yeah. And this doctor of all the doctors was really kind. Yes. You know, bless his heart. You know, he was telling us the truth and he wasn't like holding out false hope because there wasn't much, but He also said, you know, we need to get a cardiac cath and we need to confirm this. But I do want to tell you that's what it looks like and think she needs to be on oxygen and we need to do this, that, and a couple other things. And so Lisa and I kind of looking at each other like a totally life-defining moment. You know, you're just like stunned. You know, you take your kid in and you get a, seems like a fatal diagnosis like within two hours. Mm -hmm. So we took her outside. I just remember <laughs> we got into our minivan and I was like, you know, a lot of it was like way late for work, you know. I mean, it took three hours and and we're just sitting there and we're just crying in the minivan. <laughs> and we're feeding Maddie because she's hungry and she had this incredible metabolism. She just ate almost constantly. And Maddie had this really weird thing that she thought when people were crying that it was, like, really funny. And so she'd laugh. Oh, my goodness. And so, like, she's cackling behind Mm. us in this Mm. chair. I mean, she wouldn't stop. And so finally, like, Lisa and I are crying and trying to talk to each other. And then she just keeps cracking up. Mm. And so it's like the person, like, laughing inappropriately at a— at a event where it's supposed yes. to be like really solemn. And like, finally, we just started laughing, oh. laughing at her, laughing with her. It's beautiful. And so we went home, you know, the things the doctor recommended, none of them worked. Yeah. You couldn't keep oxygen on her. Holy crap. Right. We did notice that her energy seemed lower. Yeah. And we went back for a follow-up within like a week or two, and had this cardiac cath, which confirmed what he suspected the first time. He said to us, you know, he said, the right side of her heart's enlarged and she's in failure. And there's no reason to think that it won't be progressive. So he said, if something happens at home, you just need to think through, will you call an ambulance or what will you do? We're still kind of devastated by the diagnosis. And, you know, we're telling people and telling family, you know, this looks fatal. You know, they're saying six to 12 months. As a little bit of a side story, my dad goes into the hospital with a really bad cough and they do x-rays and they find out he's got lung cancer like three weeks later. And he lives in Cincinnati. So we're dealing with Maddie's illness and telling people and our teachers and people at work and our friends and, and everyone else We go into December. She seems to be more short of breath. You know, of course, she won't keep the oxygen on. She doesn't understand it. Mm -hmm. So she just pulls it off. So we're kind of going into another new normal. She's got what looks like a fatal disease. We're at home. It was a Saturday. And we're taking her out. And we had seen a bunch of people. And she was at the mall. She loved people. And so... We're at home and we're trying to get her to go to sleep. 
kids are in bed, Brian and Chris are asleep, and Lisa and I are going to watch a movie. She starts throwing up, which was actually pretty common. And when she started throwing up, she had this reflex that slowed her heart down, which is a pretty common thing. But with her, all of a sudden, she passed out. Mm. And she got real cyanotic. She got real blue. You know, Lisa and I are up, and we're right next to her. We're praying, and I'm, like, doing CPR, and she's unconscious. You know, feeling her heartbeat, listening to her heartbeat. We're going on for probably 10 or 15 minutes. Mm. And Lisa and I looked at each other, and... And we thought, you know, did we call the ambulance? Mm -hmm. I practiced emergency medicine. I knew what the ambulance meant. Right. And the doctor had just said, you know, like, think through. And, you know, we prayed, what do we do? And, you know, she died right there Hmm. in our living room. And so... In many ways, it was really holy. You know, you had the experience with your brother. Mm-hmm. It's real similar. Mm-hmm. So to hear you talk about Lance mm-hmm. in that night and what was going on, it was really similar. Mm-hmm. Just Lisa and I, though. You know, it wasn't like we we could pull people around. Right. right. And so right there, we're giving her to God. Have a sense I should stop working on her. Yes. And then... She dies there, her heart stops. And so, just sort of the practical reality, your child's dead in your home, Mm. you know? And again, grace of God, Mm. favor of God, had a good Christian friend, doctor. You know, it's 11 o'clock at night. Mm. Call him, wake him up. He comes over. He says, use this funeral home. Mm. I'll call the coroner. I'll do this, I'll do that. Since we didn't have like a hospice situation because right. we didn't, you know, we didn't know. Right, yeah, happened fast. Yeah. Happened faster than we thought. So we woke the kids up and called them downstairs. And even our doctor friend's not there yet. Brian was 10 and Chris was six. We had talked to them of course, we weren't hiding this from anybody, especially them, and yeah. say it is really serious, and mm-hmm. she may not be with us, but, you know, how do you explain to a, you know, a six-year-old, 10-year-old that your siblings got a fatal disease? And, you know, they knew she was different, and they really loved Maddie and really cared for her and were really good with her. So they come down and and see her and talk with her and pray with her and doctor friend shows up and then the rest of the night proceeds with the funeral home showing up and everything else. I have a service here in Colorado and he had a service in Cincinnati and used the opportunity to get my family mm. and Lisa's family. Hey, you got to hear the gospel. Okay. <laughs> so, so we're in the Presbyterian church that Lisa and I were married in. And the family I lived with, the pastors doing the service, and things once again have shifted. Yes. In a different direction. 
not what you're expecting from five weeks before to, you know, what your situation is at that particular time. Brad, being quite a bit removed from it practically, but obviously from the emotion, just amazing. The reality of time, of Kronos time, how the heart doesn't function that way. I mean, your heart is so present and to just see a father's love for his daughter and to see the anguish with you and Lisa and with your children, it's a really holy space. And I want to honor that. And at the same time, feels like such a treasure to bring the story to the hearts of other men that I know many of the men, while the circumstances might be different, Mm -hmm. find themselves in a tremendous battle. They find themselves suffering and they find themselves coming to some conclusions in their heart if they were to name them that probably aren't real fruitful right now because they're midstream. You're here talking about it over a decade later, oh, yeah. but they're in the throes of it. So from that heart as, as a dad and as a husband and as a man who's walked with God for a long time, what is it that you would love to say to those men out there that are in the midst of a horrific battle? What comes to your heart? I think one thing just kind of real practically is that the phrase or the sentence, nothing will ever change, is a lie mm-hmm. straight from pit of hell. Now, it doesn't always mean that something's going to get better, mm-hmm. but things change all the time. Things change every day. You know, nothing will ever change is never true. <laughs> Interesting. And so if I was saying something to myself at that time of my life in my 30s, it may have sounded something like nothing will ever change. And when I look back on it, and it's not the fact that she died that was changing, but to be real honest, our lives changed. We grew through Mm -hmm. this. Lisa and I were drawn together. We sifted through a lot of crap Mm -hmm. in our lives and in our relationships. What of your story made it possible to sift through it that otherwise you might not have been able to or someone else might not? Well, it was the demands of of Maddie. Yes. And to a lesser extent, a demand of having two other kids and a demand of, you know, having a career in a ministry and whatever. But there had to be kind of this brutal honesty with where we were at in life and what our realities were. And there were kind of huge things that were seemingly lost Mm -hmm. when we had Maddie. But I actually see almost as much change as when she was growing up. She was almost nine when she passed away. And so we grew through it. We were able to to kind of sift through the things that were important Mm -hmm. and the things that were not important. You know, when you're kind of going through adversity, you have this huge ability to sift friendships Mm -hmm. and relationships because in our particular situation, we needed people to come alongside of us. And thank God we had them. But because our life was really messy and real discombobulated and it kind of looked not great from the outside, 
it was the authentic people that were drawn to us and we were drawn to yes. them. So people with BS or people who are like, oh, I'll help you with her or whatever. Then you call them, they never help you. You know, they're off my list. Yes. You know, I mean, not that you have a list of what is good or is bad, but you certainly have a list of who's willing to walk with you and who yes. isn't. And there were Christians, there were different circles. They weren't all our age. Some were a little older, some a little younger. And, you know, like the Tom Cruise in the uh, in the movie, we lost the ability to bullshit. You yes. know, we couldn't fake it anymore. We had this really unusual looking kid that we would walk around the mall with. You know, it was just really obvious something was wrong with her. And, you know, you see people try to interact with her and say, oh, she got Down syndrome, like mm-hmm. the only thing that kids can have, you know, if they look unusual. And so we just sort of like, laugh to ourselves about just some of the stupid things people would say. Right. And out of their embarrassment and out of feeling like they need to say something when reality is, you know, 99% of the time, if they just stood next to you and put an arm around you, that was, Mm. that was more than enough. Mm. Mm. So we had these friends in Houston, Mike and Susie and, I was best friends with Mike and Susie was best friends with Lisa. You know, it was a great couple situation. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it did feel like you got the awkward thing of the girls get along, but the guys are mm-hmm. like, you know, totally different planets or whatever. So anyway, this great couple and we're three years into living here and this whole thing with Maddie happens and Mike's a dentist and he's got his own practice and everything else. And so we called our friends in Houston and they're praying and, everything else. And then we have this Saturday where Maddie passes away and called them Sunday morning. You know, we were using chains of people, you know, Mm -hmm. we were, Hey, would you please call, Mm -hmm. you know, the next five people just so we get off the phone. Mm -hmm. I think we called them at seven in the morning on Sunday and Our doorbell rings at one. It's Mike and Susie. Mm. Mm. It's so beautiful. So beautiful. They stepped back into our lives. And like Susie took over handling phone calls and answering the phone. And Mike helped me with a bunch of things with the house and getting ready for the service and took our kids out and did things with them. And it was really pretty stunning. Mm. Act of friendship, act of love. They stuck around for like the next four days. And he had canceled four days for the patients because of us. You know, without friends like that, we would have gotten through it, mm-hmm. but we wouldn't have gotten through it as well as we did. Yes. But we had several, fortunately. Mm. So, mm. Brad, it's such a good word to remember when you're interacting with friends when they are in the midst of a great battle and they're suffering that to keep it simple and oh, simply yeah. be there. Because you're right. I mean, we find ourselves often in that situation of going, I don't know what to do. And so often in so many forms, moving away from them yeah. rather than simply like you said, the arm around you at the mall to showing up at your door and just being with you in it. It's just such a beautiful picture. Very true. 
Brad, really have been honored to share this time with you. And before we close up, I'd love to ask any other thoughts, any other counsel, one thing that's on your heart, if you could leave um, as a man who's walked the narrow road and the ancient path that Jeremiah talks about and that you're ahead of us by a couple decades in a lot of ways, what is it that you'd want to share? You know, I had a pretty unusual career path with corporate medicine and then academic medicine and then working for a ministry and then working for Ransom Heart. And through that time, I was offered the opportunity to work at Focus on the Family. And But I'm in this like really super lucrative academic job down in Galveston and career path is paved with gold and going to be a residency director. And I all been offered all this stuff that just looked really great. But I was working 10 hour days and six days a week and had these three kids and mm-hmm. one special one in the middle. And I was really drawn to the ministry opportunity. I felt the pull for the being spoiled for the supernatural. I'd gone to a conference and ended up listening to a very wise man, Dr. Richard Swenson. And one of the things, you know, it's just like speaking into my soul about things of the kingdom. And at one point he said to me, he didn't say to me, it felt like he said it to me. He said it to, you know, like 50 people in this Mm -hmm. conference. And this wasn't his quote. I forget who he quoted. But he said, don't make career decisions, make kingdom decisions. And I'm like, whoa, just what I needed to hear. Mm. And for me, that meant I was heading back into ministry. I mean, for most guys, they don't work in ministry. But I still think there's truth in that phrase. Yes. And the the truth is, live kingdom-minded. Yes. Don't necessarily strike a career path that will get you the most money or influence or the most businesses or the most opportunity or the elected position or the higher upper level management, you know, if God in the kingdom is calling you to a different path, that's the kingdom decision. Don't sit around and try to plot a career when you're supposed to be living in a kingdom. And that looks really different Mm -hmm. for different guys, Mm -hmm. especially in your 30s, because I think you're just hitting a stride where you're not dealing with the kind of the more fundamental question of the 20s, mm-hmm. and you're not living with some of the complexities of your 40s, but you're in your 30s. And when I realized, if I had stayed at the university with our present family situation, my life would have looked a whole lot different. It would have been more comfortable financially, but wouldn't have lived the rich experiences that God was calling me and our family into here mm-hmm. in Colorado and with focus and with ransomed heart. So that's like one truth that I'd like to yes. throw out there for guys to consider. And again, it's not quit your great job. I'll be the men's pastor at your church, you know, lead the youth ministry. Those are special calling. Right. But if you live with the kingdom in mind through your 30s, I think the lines will fall for you in pleasant places. God will help you and direct you and provide the grace you need as you come across the challenges and the hurdles that you face in that decade. Mm. 
Brad, what I hear you saying to me and to all these other younger men, just so much parallels what C.S. Lewis talks about when he offers the idea of first things and second things, Mm -hmm. where he says so often we chase second things, these good things, these noble things, these true things, but they're not kingdom things. And he says, when we chase the first things, the kingdom of God, then we end up getting both first and second things. But when we shoot for second things, we so often end up missing both. Yeah, that's great. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thanks for your counsel. Thank you for your beautiful and brutal honesty about your story, really trusting that God's going to use it in the lives of a lot of men. Thanks. Appreciate the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed this edition of the Become Good Soil podcast. For other podcasts, blogs, resources, and lots more, please join us at becomegoodsoil.com.